All right, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this tremendous privilege of gathering together as family on a Sunday morning, a morning that you've ordained from eternity past, Father, to, to your glory. What a privilege it is to partake in any aspect of your plan, Father. We thank you for revealing to us your love in time that we might embrace it, live in it, love it back. Father, what a privilege this is to understand you, your essence, your grace, your mercy, your love, and also to be able to spread these things to others as vessels of mercy. What a privilege that is, Father. May we never become familiar with it. Father, we pray for those that are not able to be with us this morning, members of this congregation of ours that might be suffering some way physically or spiritually or even emotionally. We just pray for their safe return, Father. Your will be done, of course. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, Father, for there are many. We just pray that they're humbled and that they receive your salvation. Father, we're most grateful and thankful, of course, for this salvation, a salvation that was afforded to us at the cross. We just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, undistracted devotion to the Lord this past week was dominated by a statement gleaned from the Bible. Uh, I'll give you the instigating passages in the Amplified Translation. Again, this past week was dominated. It started actually on Tuesday during uh, our normal review. Um, let me give you the, a couple of uh, passages that really get us going here. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 in the Amplified. Again, we're looking for that statement that instigated uh, the last few lessons. Finally, believers, we ask and admonish you in the Lord Jesus that you follow the instruction that you received from us about how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are actually doing. So Paul's writing this letter, this epistle, and he's saying it's not that you're not doing good things. It's not that you're not walking the walk, so to speak. But that's not where it ends. And that might apply to some of you. You might be doing just fine. And as a shepherd, as your shepherd, I'm encouraging you the same way, using Holy Scripture, the same way that Paul was encouraging this group of believers. He addresses believers directly, finally believers. Um, you're already walking. And that you excel even more and more, pursuing a life of purpose and living in a way that expresses gratitude to God for your salvation. I call that living the gospel reality. That last bracketed statement, that's what... I mean when I say living the gospel reality, that you excel even more and more pursuing a life of purpose and living in a way that expresses gratitude to God for your salvation. 
I mean, the flip side is to live like a brat, right? What have you done for me lately? To take something, a miracle, like salvation, and then stuff it away in the annals of your own categorical mind, like putting it way back there as some forensic reality, some fact that happened. Oh, it did happen, but it's way over there. It's gaining dust. Each day that I live, I'm separated from this thing that I am grateful for, but you know how that goes. The, the distance of time sometimes, you know, uh, we forget about what to be grateful for. We forget where we came from. And I think it's healthy to go back to those days when you know that you were saved. And that kind of exuberance that you had when you were saved, that love you had, that gratitude that you had when you realized and repented and were saved. What happened to that? What happened to that sense of gratitude? Um, Nonetheless, these individuals, it's not like they weren't walking, but Paul wrote, as I would encourage you all to think about as well, that you excel even more and more. Living the gospel reality, pursuing a life of purpose, and living in a way that expresses gratitude to God for your salvation. The other verse was verse 10. I'll give you the amplified again. 1 Thessalonians 4.10 For indeed you already do practice it toward all the believers throughout Macedonia by actively displaying your love and concern for them. So again, we see individuals that are living for others. He's saying it's not like you're not doing these things. It's not like you're not living for others. I see it. I... uh, Encourage it. I applaud you for it. But we urge you, brothers and sisters, that you excel in this matter more and more. So there shouldn't be some threshold, or I don't want to call it a glass ceiling because that has a negative connotation, but there shouldn't be some kind of um, ceiling to your activities. It shouldn't be like, well, I've done enough. And once I arrive, that's it. Um, That's the encouragement that we're receiving, that we're supposed to be on an upward slope always, that we excel even more. So at the start of Thursday's class, we asked ourselves, why is he giving us a somewhat involved series on undistracted devotion to the Lord? I mean, this is part 16, right? Undistracted devotion to the Lord. Why is this so involved? And again, this is... The impetus for our last few lessons up here on the board, this is the answer. God is asking us to excel still more. That's what we just read in Holy Scripture. To not just rest on our laurels, to excel still more. Are you distracted? Are you devoted to the Lord? So, I need you all to concentrate because we're going to talk a little theology here. First off, we need to posture ourselves properly. For starters, the phrase still more implies a starting point, right? I mean, to say something is more, there has to be a starting point. It's more than something else. It's just the nature of the phrase, right? Still more implies a starting point. In this case, it is our salvation proper. Oh, you were grateful here. 
And you were given certain blessings and even realized them and lived in certain blessings here when you were saved. But as the apostle said, it's still more than just that. It's being sanctified to a greater degree than just positionally. Up here on the board, we might say this then, positional sanctification is hardly the end goal of sanctification itself. Positional sanctification, what happens at salvation proper, is hardly the end goal of sanctification. Hardly. We often think about sanctification in its three basic parts, positional, experiential, ultimate, you know, the three phases, if you would. But that's hardly um, the end game, positional, up here on the board. Even if we consider sanctification in three discrete parts, the truth is that from God's perspective, it's a single plan. Remember, positional, experiential, ultimate sanctification, those terms don't even, they're not even in the Bible. Those are constructs that we use, that theologians have sort of agreed upon over the ages, so that we can talk about certain phases of life. Because we humans, as we know, are bound to the construct of time. But God is not. So from God's perspective, it's just sanctification. And if you read your Bible, that's really how it's written. It's sanctification. And so we have to learn to think like God. In our effort to learn bitwise theology, we, have, we cannot abandon the reality that is God's, which is his viewpoint on sanctification and even salvation. So again, even if we consider it this way, in three discrete parts, the truth is that from God's perspective, it's a single plan. So we have to learn to think about salvation and sanctification as one big unified plan. For example, we are saved daily. A lot of people don't think that way. They think, I was saved in 1970 at some tent meeting or something. I was saved last year when I heard this. I was saved 10 years ago. And that's it. And it's almost like it's some detail from before. And that's doing a major disservice to the reality that is salvation from God's perspective. Because from God's perspective, He saves us daily. From God's perspective, He keeps us saved. There's an activity, in other words, We don't show up to the gates of heaven with a contract. See, in 1970, it says right here, you signed, I signed, I'm good, let me in. That's not the nature of salvation. The reality is, from God's perspective, one big unified plan, He saves us daily. For example, from what? The schemes of the devil. For example, Romans 1, 16, 17, Ephesians 6, 11, Luke 22, 31 to 32, John 18.9, Part B, as we noted on Thursday, and we have so many times in the past, Romans 1.17 states, from faith to faith, that has movement right in it, from here to here. From faith to faith, there's a movement, which refers to what? Sanctification. Whenever we talk about movement in the spiritual life, under the power of God, we call that sanctification. From faith to faith, sanctification. You're sanctified being set apart. 
The implication being, up here, up here on the board again, we are saved daily. How are we going to move if we're not saved daily? If we're not delivered daily? Sanctification, then, is something active. Remember that the Word of God is living and active. Hebrews 4.12 gives us that. It is the key ingredient the Spirit of Christ uses to set us apart for God's purposes, a.k.a. sanctify us, make us holy. Again, we are saved daily. Sanctification is something active. Excuse me. In other words, you can't be sanctified if you're not saved, even daily. You can't be set apart for God's purposes if you're not delivered from your enemies in the first place. That's what the Spirit's teaching us. That that is an ongoing thing. And that's where our gratitude sort of comes from. When we realize that we're saved daily. That it's not just some forensic, crusty old detail from the 70s. And oh, I'm just going to celebrate that thing, which is great, you should, and that's going to be the impetus for all celebration. No, how about the fact that you're saved daily? How about the fact that the Bible tells us that He saves us daily, keeping us saved? In other words, there's a very real potentiality of being lost, but it never happens because God ensures it never happens. Because God knows that your flesh would what? Given the opportunity, run right back to the sphere of, of uh, where it came from. <laughs> your enemies would drag you back, given the opportunity, right? You're not strong enough to fight that. God is. And that's why we have to realize that we're saved daily. This is something that we should show gratitude for every time we get out of bed in the morning. So sanctification is something active. Remember that the Word of God is living and active. It is the key ingredient to the Spirit of Christ, or that the Spirit of Christ uses to set us apart for God's purposes, make us holy or sanctify us. A perfect example is when we are faced with something that is antagonistic to sanctification. Okay, so it's from faith to faith. What happens when we hit something? Something's antagonistic. There's back pressure. From faith to faith, God's trying to sanctify us. There's back pressure, something. What is it that we draw upon to deliver us? The only viable answer for believers is the Word of God. It's the Word of God. I sometimes wonder what the average so-called Christian does when faced with adversity. I think that's why there's so many bad examples of Christianity. is because it seems like a, a, a large number of people call themselves Christians, but they're really not. I would argue that most of, a lot of them aren't even saved. But they call themselves Christians. And so <laughs> the world says, oh, that's a Christian, right? So they stand out with the name Christian. Maybe they wear earrings with crosses, tats, you know, medallion necklaces. But they're not actually really Christians, and so they never read their Bible even. They hear, like, they got some old stories from, like, you know, prep school or something back in the day. Who knows? Or maybe their parents told them the story of, I don't know, Moses or something. But they have no real scripture 
circulating in them. And so when adversity hits, what do they do? They've got nothing. It's like going out to, uh, you know, an old Roman battlefield with completely nude. No armor. You know, Ephesians 6, the armor of God. No armor, no breastplate, no, no, no boots, nothing. No helmet, nothing. No sword, no machira, right? Nothing. Go out there, Eric, go out there nude. You said you're a Christian. Run out into the field nude. Whoa, I got nothing to defend myself. Oh, yeah, right. That's right. So I sometimes wonder what the average so-called Christian does when faced with adversity, especially one that has zero Holy Scripture in their souls. In other words, they have nothing to turn to. Nothing of any real substance anyways. So maybe we consider what Hebrews 4.12 does not say. What does Hebrews 4.12 not say? Well, we might look at it this way. Hebrews 4.12 does not say the following will sanctify us. Being a good person. Oh, that's my favorite. I've got to go spend time with a bunch of Catholics today. And every single one of them thinks that being a good person is going to get them into heaven. And that is the biggest flippant lie in the history of lies almost. You don't get into heaven because you're a good person. But these people, their own doctrines, that's what they lie. They lie to each other about, I'm a good person, so I'm going to get into heaven if I just go to church. Some of you probably don't know this, and I'm not picking on Catholics, but I am. In their own doctrines, they say if you're not a member of the Catholic Church, you can't be saved. Wait a minute, what? Yeah, that's in their doctrines. Don't believe me? Go look it up. I've read their doctrines. Have you? For theological purposes, I have read those doctrines. Have you? Probably not. And you don't have to worry about it unless you're interested in sparring with one of them. Being a good person is, a, is fruit of being saved, at best. But the Bible says there's none righteous, not even one. So you can't be saved by being a good person. Now, Hebrew 12 does, definitely does not say that is going to sanctify us, being a good person. Romantic love. Uh, uh, I don't want to touch that because I'll go off for 15 minutes. I'm so tired of dealing with this. People, stop it. Stop it with the romantic love. Enough. Go back even 200 years. See, I can't help myself. I cannot help myself. Why? You know why? Because it's pervasive. Turn on the radio. Love this, love that. They found love at the, at the, the club, D-A club. The club. No, you didn't. You didn't find anything like love at the, the club. God loves me because he gave me love at the club. That's going to be my next blog. People are like, this guy losing his marbles? Stop with the romantic love. That has nothing to do with sanctification. Do you want to know about romantic love? You ready? There's, there's one thing you have to know about romantic love. It's called marriage. And that's the end of it. Either you're courting for marriage, and you get married, and that's the end of it, and there's sex between a husband and a wife, or there's none of it. 
That's the end of it. And that's the end of my tirade because I keep wanting to go. How about worldly success? Hebrews 4.12 is nothing about that. Worldly success doesn't sanctify us. Or religiosity, being religious or whatever, you know, cleaning the toilets at the church and God's pleased because you're such a wonderful toilet cleaner. Let's go to a passage that will state clearly what will sanctify us. So those things don't sanctify us. What will sanctify us? How about we go, ready? The prayer of Jesus Christ Himself, the Messiah. John 17, 12, go there. John 17, verse 12. John, and I, I really do hope you all read the blog this week. If you're not reading the blog by now, I don't know what makes me more upset. That thing about romantic love or your, your idiocy not taking the grace of God. I'm not sure. I want to throw tomatoes at both. John, that's not holy, by the way. Just saying. There's nothing in the Bible that says I should throw tomatoes at any of you. John 17, 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them. This is our Lord. You ready? This is the Lord. Some of you probably have read letters, right? Some don't. But this is Jesus talking, okay? If we're going to listen to anybody's words in the Bible as a priority, not that we should prioritize one over the other, but you know what I'm saying. Shouldn't we listen to what Jesus has to say? I think so. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You see it? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That is the essence of Hebrews 4.12, my friends. The word is alive and powerful and active. And able, active, living and active and able to, you fill in the blanks, to sanctify you. That's the exact same thing that Jesus Christ is praying about. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. Sanctification, activity. So that's the essence of Hebrews 4.12. It's the word being alive and active in our souls that sanctifies us. And this was Jesus' prayer. We have been sent out into the world with the Word as our armor. From Ephesians 6, up here on the board. It's our armor. That's why I use that example, the Roman battlefield. You don't go out in a battlefield naked. You have to be armored. We're soldiers for Christ. We're to peristemi. Put it on. Take our marching orders. Ephesians 6.13 Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. You're not going to hold the line in a battle if you've got no protection, no weaponry, nothing. 
you're going to last a half a second because you're going to depend on what's left, you, which never holds up. So we need the Word to sanctify us. Again, verse 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. What's the world for us? A battlefield. He's sending us out. And He doesn't want us to be naked. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. So, let me ask you a simple question. How is the following statement from the Apostle Peter true up here on the board? 2 Peter 2.9 reads, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. How's that work? We just read it. How are you going to be rescued from temptation? You go out into the world, the world's full of temptation. How are you going to be rescued from that? Protected, not crushed, not completely overwhelmed to the degree where maybe you lose your salvation. This cannot happen, but you know what I'm saying. The potentiality, the, the, the potential of losing faith. How does that work? We just read it. We literally just read it. In two passages, Hebrews 4.12, John 17.17. 17. The Lord has given us His Word and His Spirit. That is how He rescues us from temptation. That's what 2 Peter 2.9 says. That's what's implied. What can we conclude then? Up here on the board. Sanctification is a daily effort up here on the board. Sanctification is a daily effort made by the one who saved us in the first place. He is the Word. We have the Word. The Word is truth, that which sanctifies us. Again, sanctification is a daily effort made by the one who saved us in the first place. He is the Word. We have the Word. The Word is truth, that which sanctifies us. And you know what? Satan does not want us to understand these things. He does not want you to put on the full armor of God. He wants you to do like I'm sure some person who's not here today did today. I don't feel like getting out of bed this morning. Why? Lack of gratitude. Pretty much what it is. I don't want to get out of bed today for the Lord. I don't want to get out of bed today for my fellow believers in the church. I don't want to encourage somebody else. Why would I ever do that? This is about me. I don't want to, I mean, I feel like crap, so I, why would I get out of bed and why would I do that for somebody else? I'm not talking about people who have viable excuses. I mean, I, I'm thinking about somebody right now who has to go through hell and high water just to get here every Sunday because of personal situation. And you know what? They're here today. And guarantee there's somebody that's not here today that just rolled over and went, click. And they don't give a crap about you in that moment. They don't care about encouraging you. Do you know what I'm getting at? They might hear Hebrews 10.25 a hundred times from, from this pulpit, and they still say, shuffle on. I don't care about assembling together for the sake of encouragement. Click. 
What does that say? So they don't care about encouraging you. Because if they did, they'd be here. Minimally for that reason. Hmm. So you see, Satan does not want us to understand such things. Doesn't want us to be grateful. Doesn't want us to think, doesn't want us to realize that we're saved daily. That the Lord has an active role in our faith. That it's not just some forensic, archaic, dusty detail from 30 years ago. He doesn't want us to think that way. Because if we start thinking that way, all of a sudden we wake up out of bed every morning grateful. Because there's something to be grateful for right now. He doesn't want you to understand those things. He wants you to, to follow suit with all these religious morons out there who dress up on Sunday mornings and think that's what's pleasing to God. You know, being a good person. That's what's pleasing to God. No, it's not. John the Baptist would be in big trouble. Camel hair. Satan doesn't want us to understand these things, so he sets up pitfalls, tests, and temptations to trip us up. But, as we just noted in 2 Peter 2.9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. This implies the following again, we are saved daily from what exactly the schemes of the devil. Let's review the other passages listed here up here on the board. Ephesians 6.11, again, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Put on the word of God. And duo, put on Christ, it says elsewhere. I think it's in Ephesians. Put on Christ. Take off the flesh, put on Christ. Well, Christ is the Word. Put on the Word. Put on the full armor, do you see? It's just the same thing over and over, just different expressions, different analogies used in the Word of God. That's what, what you realize when you start reading your Bible. Is It's the same thing over and over. It's just describing the Gospel over and over. The good news about Jesus Christ over and over. It's true. Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. This is all about God's salvation plan for we moron cockroach idiots who deserve none of it, Romans 5. Who deserve none of it. That's what this is all about. People make way too much out of it than what it actually is. It's actually very simple. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Schemes of the devil up here on the board, I'm borrowing from McDonald. This is from like a year and a half ago in a lesson. The devil has various stratagems. Discouragement, frustration, confusion, moral failure, and doctrinal error. He knows our weakest point and aims for it. If he cannot disable us by one method, he will try for another. Now, it was at this point on Thursday that we reflected upon a very important point of biblical doctrine. Again, it's not so important that we have a technical name for it as such. It's important that we understand something about being saved daily that we mustn't ever forget up here on the board. Our Lord and His Spirit intercede for us. We have inter intercessors, in other words. Because we don't know what we're doing. We're pretty hopeless. No, we're absolutely hopeless without Him. 
And what the Bible tells us is that even whatever faith we do have, it will fail unless He upholds it. Whatever staying power we have is because He's behind us every step of the way. That's something to be grateful for. Do you think your spouse is going to do for that for you? Or your so-called, I'm laughing because it's a joke, your so-called romantic love, you think they're going to do that for you? They're going to prop you up? They're going to hold you up? No, they're not. No, they're not. God will. Being a good person is not going to do it. Being religious isn't going to do it. Our Lord and the Spirit intercede for us. Luke 22, 32, Romans 8, 26 to 27. Why? Well, apparently, based on Holy Scripture, apparently that is what is required so that we are never lost again or even completely overcome where our faith suffers a, a fatal blow. Apparently that's what's required. And I use apparently loosely. Because I, I use it to say that apparently... In other words, based on Holy Scripture, that's what's required. If it wasn't required, they wouldn't intercede for us. There wouldn't be a need for it. In other words, if we were already perfected in the faith, there wouldn't be a need for it. We'd know exactly how to pray. Anybody here want to stand up and say you know exactly how to pray? Because you just, if you do, and even in your own brain, you just insulted God the Holy Spirit... Who would be doing it, what, in vain? Who intercedes with groanings too deep for words? For you? Every time you sit down and pray? Because you're praying for one thing and God's will is something else? Thank God we have intercessors. Our very sanctification, our faith depends upon it. That's what it means to be saved daily. I don't think a lot of Christians even know what I'm talking about. Honest to goodness, they'd be like, what is he even talking about? I mean, I have a Bible signed by some dude with a six-foot cap that says, congratulations, you were saved today. I got that. Well, you know what? You can take your ridiculous human contract and throw it in the garbage. Because that means absolutely nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Apparently, what is required is that we're saved daily. That there's an ongoing activity. And you know who he does it for? True believers. Not people who have hedged some wacky bet back in the day. True believers. Persevering saints. Not people who have hedged a bet. And tell mommy and daddy, I'm good because like 20 years ago I said I believed in Jesus Christ. So have a lot of people who have apostatized, who have left the faith, who never really had saving faith ever. They just hedged a bet. So have a lot of people said that. What do you think Judas Iscariot was doing? Hey, I know it's an intimate setting, but I'm just going to tell you right now, I don't believe any of this crap. Do you think that's what he was doing? For three years? However long? What do you think he was doing? He was playing a game. He was this close to the Messiah. 
Nobody else knew what was going on. Remember? Who is it? Who's going to betray you, Lord? And he's sitting right there. Nobody knew. He's playing a game just like a lot of Christians do. They play a game. They're hedging bets. That doesn't work. If it did, Jesus would have saved him too, but he didn't. That's some scary stuff right there. A lot of people out there we've got to be really concerned about. That's motivation. Again, some contemporary theologians refer to this stuff as, you know, quote-unquote, the doctrine of the persevering saints. But again, I don't care what anyone calls it because that's not in the Bible. And I'm through trying to impose, you know, and dictate to you uh, certain terms. I just want you to understand that a believer is saved daily. And Jesus Christ and His Spirit go out of their way specifically for believers personally, to intercede for them. That's not something they do for unbelievers, which is why they can fade away. It's why they can, quote, lose the faith. It's because they don't have the intercessor because they're not saved in the first place. So some call it that. I don't care. It doesn't matter. In a way, we think of the Lord as our guarantor. Do you know the guarantor, the one who actually guarantees something? We think of him as our guarantor. A perfect example of this activity is captured up here on the board, Luke 22, 31 to 32. Hey, you guys are getting to be lazy today, huh? Have you gone to one scripture at least? You guys are like, oh, man, my fingers are getting tight. Don't worry, it's coming. This is all part of review. Luke 22, 31 to 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Why would that even be necessary? Remember the wheat and the tares? That's like unbeliever, believer. He's not, he don't believe in you. Let let me at him. That's Satan. Let me at him. I'll show you that he doesn't believe anything. He doesn't believe you. Let me sift him. I'll show you. Why didn't he just say go? He said, I prayed for you. Why would that even be necessary? That your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. There may be cracks. There may be times when your faith, you know, wanders and you have doubts and this kind of thing. But as far as saving faith is concerned, uh uh-uh. You're never going to lose it. If you're saved, you're done up here on the board, that your faith may not fail. The emphasis should not be placed on the potentiality of failure, but rather the effectiveness of the Lord's prayer. But I have prayed for you, verse 32. Peter's imperfect faith did fail at times, but it was never fully eclipsed. He always turned again. Some, I mean, who hasn't? Even I, I'll be totally honest with you. I remember teaching the gospel reload and saying to myself, dude, you better make sure you're saved. Like, literally, to me, to myself. I'm like, you better make sure you're saved, dude. Fine, that's great. I invite that. Because at the end of the day, he reassured me. So, you know, it's, there's times when you falter. And Satan's like, see? See, you're faltering. You're not saved. You're, you, know, you're, you might as well just run back into the world because you're done. You're not saved. 
and he'll capitalize on your doubt. But you know what? You're all here, which means you, quote, turned again, just like Peter. And you know who prayed for you, for your turning? Jesus Christ did. You weren't about to turn. You're like this. Woohoo! <laughs> Go to Romans 8.26. I know it's a lot to ask to turn pages. Limber up. Romans 8.26. You see the perspective the Spirit's given us? I hope so. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Because it gives us reason to be grat- uh, grateful. Excuse me. Romans 8, 26, In the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That's right, you have an intercessor that helps you when you're praying even. Because we don't know how to pray. We think we do. But we don't know exactly, and this is fair, what the will of God is, even in our own lives. We think it's one thing, we make plans, and he's like, your ways are not my ways. As far as the heavens are above the earth. That's how different we are. So God facilitates, I guess goodness you might say, in our prayer life even interceding for us. So do you see what God wants the intercession of the Spirit? Do you see that He wants the intercession of the Spirit? Because it's according to the will of God. He wants that intercession to exist. You know why? It's because He doesn't want your faith to fail. Ever. He's protecting you. He intercedes for you because He's protecting you. Because He refuses to lose you. That's what grace looks like. There's not, every single thing that we do that has any intrinsic good to it is from Him. We're just vessels of mercy. It's incredible that He pours out this kind of love on our laps consistently every day, saving us daily, sanctifying us, almost despite ourselves. That's the right way to say it. Up here on the board, again, this is the point. Our Lord and His Spirit intercede for us. Why? Apparently, that is what is required so that we are never lost again or even completely overcome where our faith suffers a fatal blow. This is a very important encouraging truth in the Word of God. And understanding it results in casting off the temptation of thinking about salvation as a mere forensic detail in our life. That's a very bad way to think about salvation. A horrible way to think about salvation. It opens up all kinds of bad thinking. If you just think about salvation, now remember God's viewpoint is just one big plan anyways. He's not bound by time. If we impose our limitations on God's salvation plan, we lose so it's a it's really bad idea to think of salvation as just some forensic detail, some distant thing, some event that happened in the past. Because Holy Scripture tells us something different. It's more of a starting point for him to continue to continually keep us saved. 
I know people right now that say things like, well, I may not have faith anymore, but 10 to 20 years ago, I did believe in Jesus Christ, and so now I'm still saved. I'm all set. No. No, I am very sorry. That is not how it works. I'm not sorry, because that's an insult to my Lord. Who the hell are you to put God on puppet strings, to play some ridiculous game like that? I don't have faith anymore, but don't worry about me because I believed 20 years ago. I believed 20 years ago. What happened to perseverance? You sound like an apostate to me. That is a very bad thing to encourage, by the way. If your parents, grandparents, brothers, sisters uh, of, of individuals that say this kind of garbage, um, get it right. Help them get it right. Wake them up. Tell them, no, that's not, gonna, that's not what the Bible talks about. I know you were lied to before. Someone lied to you along the way. If that's what these people think, they've been lied to. Or they've just chosen to think that way because they're that manipulative and creative. But God isn't mocked. That is pure folly, my friends, and wholly not supported by the Word of God. The whole premise of the persevering saint is that a believer never loses their faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the whole idea. Even Jesus Christ said, I lost not one. As we've studied in excruciating detail over the past few years, what I've just described is an apostate. A true believer cannot ever be lost. Their faith won't ever be crumbled to the point where, like Peter, they don't return. Or unlike Peter, they don't return. A true believer always returns. Always. Even in my greatest moments, you can relate to this, even in your greatest moments, let's face it, you're here, so it must be true, I'm assuming, unless you're still struggling with the faith. Even in your greatest moments of doubt, somewhere in the back of your head, the Spirit is going, I'm not letting you go. You can sit there and say, I don't believe you. I don't know if I believe this anymore. And the Spirit's like, I'm not letting you go. The next day, you're over there laughing. Like, yeah, that was kind of silly. I got, I got, there's nowhere I'm going. I'm in the flock. Where are you going to go? If I venture off, the, the, what is the, the, the great shepherd goes, whack. And the next thing you know, you're back in the flock, and here you are on a fine Sunday morning looking at this mug, learning the Word of God. Why? Because He wouldn't let you go. I can't say that for everybody. I would say, what do you think, DJ? Probably over the years, I'd say quadruple the number, that's, maybe more, quintuple the number that's sitting here this morning have come and gone out of this church. And a lot of them, I am convinced, are apostates. Never were saved. Played a game for a little while. I mean, a good game. I'm talking about a really good game, like Judas. I mean, who played a better game than Judas? I mean, he had the, he had the apostles convinced. And they're gone. You see what I'm saying? But you guys stayed. That's the proof. That's the evidence. People are able to go and disappear. You've got to wonder. 
I'm not God, so I'll never say, oh, that person's definitely not saved. It's not my business. But you got to wonder, based on Holy Scripture, which tells us a true believer cannot ever be lost, Jesus won't let them be. That's what I know is true. Jesus won't let them be lost. Jesus, think about it this way. Jesus Christ is a perfect shepherd. Now, if you know, it's a pretty rudimentary job, right? Take the sheep, go over there, let them feed, and make sure none of them fall off the cliff or the wolves get them. Pretty fundamental, not hard for us to put our minds around, right? Jesus Christ is a perfect shepherd. Okay, numero uno responsibility of a shepherd, keep the, she the sheep safe. <laughs> Don't lose any of them. Right? If you were a shepherd for one day, what would be your greatest fear? Oh, crap, I lost one. Right? The real shepherd comes out and like, hey, what, where's my sheep? I lost it. What do you mean you lost it? This is your only job, your responsibility. Keep the sheep. That never happened to Jesus. Ever. He knew that Judas was going to leave, so another story. He never lost anyone. Ever. He's a perfect shepherd. A perfect shepherd never loses even one of his sheep. John 18, 9, part B. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Why? He's a perfect shepherd. He's good at his job, I guess. Huh? Up here on the board. We must observe always throughout Scripture that Jesus had and still has a very active role in our salvation, not just in his gospel call, but also in our being saved daily. It's a wonderful analogy, and I believe that's why the Bible uses it. I mean, any, potentially speaking, at any given point, a sheep, a wolf could come in and snap a sheep, right? So the shepherd has to protect the flock. From what? Loss of sheep. So there's an active role, right? If the shepherd's over there sleeping on the rock all day, something's going to go wrong. If he doesn't intercede for us, because we're like, bah! and the wolf would just come and grab us, right? Oh, we're so stupid, we go, go off the cliff. If he doesn't intercede for us, he might lose one of us. But he does. And so he never lost one because he's a perfect shepherd. So Jesus Christ has a very active role in saving, and he has no problem, by the way, saying this, his own. An unbeliever is not his own, you see. He says, get away from me, I never knew you. He says, these are my sheep. My sheep. If you're not one of his sheep, then he's not going to keep you. Which is why the sheep on the fringe, the apostates, can go away. And he doesn't keep them. Because they were never actually in the flock. That's the difference. Now about you, but I really like being inside that flock. I really like knowing, even as stupid as I can be, as great as my doubts might get one day because I'm having a bad day, that right when I get to that fringe, he's like, no, no, come here. You know, and I'm being bitter or whatever, and being like a baby. Don't look at me that way. You guys are just as bad as I am. You're like, yeah, he's, he's such a pansy. <laughs> I love that, don't you? I love that he won't let me go. So the Spirit's just reminding us of critical, of a critical point of perspective up here on the board. And sorry for that eye shot. I don't know why it came out so small like that. 
Faith is an activity, not just a forensic fact. Faith is an activity, not just a forensic fact. Faith is activity upheld, not just established once. Being given saving or delivering faith is more like a starting point than an end point. It's not, you don't just end there and that's it. It's a starting point. You're in the flock, in other words. Come on in. You come through the, the, into the, the, the sheep gate, you're in. Now you're in here. That's a starting point. But there's still, quote-unquote, danger out there. And so he keeps us in here. And there's an activity there because it's faith that keeps us in the flock. Back to our primary course of study now where we all began this morning. God is asking us to excel still more. What do we do with all that information about being saved daily? Well, it's motivation. That's what he's giving us. He's saying, when he says God is asking us to excel all the more, we have a lot to be grateful for. And when you're grateful for something, what are you motivated to do? I mean, okay, Mother's Day comes around. Very loose example. Why do you ever want to do something for your mom? Why do you want to make her day special? Because you're grateful for her. I mean, that's what we do. When we're grateful for someone, we tend to do things for them. We want to express our love and our gratitude towards them, right? So if someone says, if mom says, hey, I want you to do a little better job this thing, you might say, okay, thank you. I want to do a better job because you want me to do a better job. I didn't realize I was doing a crappy job. But I guess I was. I want to do a better job. And why might you be motivated properly to do that thing? Why might you want to excel still more? Gratitude, love, you got it. That's the same thing. Family relationship. Our Father in Heaven, who set forth a salvation plan for you, for all of eternity. You've been given eternal life. I don't know about you, but I'm really grateful for that. And when he says, excel still more, you know what I want to do? Okay, what do I do? That's why he's doing this. Don't think about what I did for you 30 years ago. Think about it as something I do for you every day. I save you every day. And that same person is asking us, excel still more. Again, even if we consider sanctification three discrete parts, the truth is that from God's perspective, it's a single plan. We are called not only to understand such things, but to live in them as our reality. You see, a lot of people live a reality that has nothing to do with God. And they're so-called Christians, and I would argue they're not persevering Christians. And you do the math. But we, we are being encouraged to live in understanding these things. This becomes our reality. Instead of having the likes of the following tattooed on your arm, maybe our goal ought to be to have it tattooed on our souls. See, there's people out there, they have, you know, anyways. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5.16. I'm sure somewhere in this world there's a person who has this tattooed on them. Chances are, that's actually not even a believer. That has Holy Scripture tattooed somewhere on them. Maybe they got a cross up here on their arm. You know what I'm saying? They were in the Navy or something like that. Or the Army. They got a cross. They were, you know, they were drunk one night. And they're like, yeah, give me a cross. 
right? And they put John 3.16 under there because, you know, 30, 30 years ago they, they supposedly believed that whole thing. Instead of having a tattoo on your arm, instead of marking up your skin, maybe this ought to be tattooed on your soul. Maybe that's where it counts. Do you know what I'm getting at? Maybe, maybe that's where it counts. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. How about that? having that tattooed on your soul? Don't just have some thing on your body, or you, know, you wear a necklace with a cross, or you have you know, earrings, or I don't know, whatever, a fish on the back of your bumper, and it's a mockery. Don't do that. It doesn't matter if you have any of that stuff. Not any of it. You don't have to be, you know, having all these, like, tattoos and stickers and necklaces and all that stuff to prove you're a Christian. God sees the heart, and that's what counts. So I have to ask each of you, what does this passage mean? We just read verses 16 to 18. What does this mean to you? Really? What does that passage mean? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to you, really? Minimally, it means we must remain an active part of God's plan. Do you see all the activity in that? Rejoice, that's like a verb, an action verb, right? Pray, that's an action verb. Give thanks, those are, that's an activity, right? There's a lot of activity going on in there. So minimally, it means we have to be an active part of God's plan. Up here on the board, we might say this. The Word is alive. We saw that in Hebrews 4.12, right? Well, so are we. So are we. And you know what? 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, For we are God's fellow workers. A lot of activity in the Bible. This means that we have an active role in His plan and in His sanctification of us. Yeah. We are God's fellow workers. The Word is alive, so are we. The key to success, you ready? Here's everybody's favorite. Dun, dun. This came out in the blog even. Everyone's favorite word, obedience. Why is it? Why is it? Why is it what goes on with you people? Did you see? You already know this is coming, right? It's the funniest thing, right? And then it comes up on the board and everybody's like, <laughs> like wait, it's like the fifth time I put it up here. Why is it like that with you people? No, why does obedience make you guys like giggle in a nervous way? Because <laughs> right? in your head you're like, I don't obey, I'm not obeying. I wrote this in a blog I write. Yep, I wrote a blog. Heaven on earth. Since we up here on the board, since we cannot produce peace or joy on our own, our occupation ought to be with that which produces righteousness. Because remember, peace and joy are the fruit of righteousness. That was the whole blog. Well, what produces righteousness? How do we get righteous? Obedience. So, if you want those awesome fruit, if you want that awesome fruit, you've got to go to the beginning of the string of pearls, so to speak. You've got to go to the front. Say, well, how do I get it? God says, just be obedient. Just be humble. Learn the Word of God. This is your part in your sanctification. Morning like this. Here we are, learning the Word of God. 
You learned things. You thought about things you didn't think about yesterday. And some of you have been on this earth for a lot of years. I say, Mary just hit a 90, Mary, smiling, happy, glowing as always. That's a long time. I'd be willing to bet not to put you on the spot, Mary. But if I was to ask her, she'd say, yes, I thought about something I'd never thought about before. Today. And she's 90. Some of you are 30 or thereabouts and going, came from the, the eggs and the yodels. We don't even have yodels. Whatever those curly coffee things are. Coffee pretzels. What are those things called? Oh, seriously, now I'm curious. What are those yellow coffee-looking things called? You dip? How do you say? Of course, Todd knows. Yeah, it doesn't matter, Todd. Joke's on you. <laughs> Anyways. Heaven on earth, since we cannot produce peace or joy on our own, our occupation ought to be with that which produces righteousness, namely obedience. So the net net of our series even takes us back to a recurring theme. Let me see if I can string it together. Excuse my um, theology here. String of pearls. I just think of these things being woven, right? There's certain things that are on the same string of pearls. Beautiful necklace, but they're on the same string. They're held together. There's a Congruity, if you would. Humility is the key to the spiritual life. This we know. I mean, that's broken record stuff from this pulpit. Humility is the key to the spiritual life. Obedience is the evidence of it. Ensuring righteousness. That's how you arrive at righteousness. You have to obey because obedience implies righteousness. Devotion, now, is the focus activity. Devotion is the focus activity. And peace and joy are the results. Now, that's, a, that's like a whole thing, right? It's like a, almost like a little, I like to use the word ecosystem. Right? Ecosystem means these things are all part of the same sort of ball of wax, and they, they're interdependent on one another, and they work, they, there's interplay with each other, and they, they, you can't separate one out. And, you know, you can look at one separately, like humility, for the sake of, uh, of speaking to it, but... At the end of the day, it's all part of this ball of wax. And that's what the Spirit's been teaching us. He's like, I don't want you to think of salvation as just some detail from 30 years ago. I don't want you to pluck this thing out and put it over there so it can collect dust without any real meaning or interplay in your life right now. Because it has everything to do with your life because it's part of this one big ball of wax, you see. You're supposed to be grateful for his salvation every single day. So humility is the key to the spiritual life. Obedience is the evidence of it, ensuring righteousness. Devotion is the focus activity. Peace and joy are the results. So before I close, let's just reflect again. We have been learning about God's, for lack of a better term, ecosystem for some time now. That's what he's been doing. He's saying, get away from, some of you, you know, you've got the, the, the remnants of hyper-doctrinalization, I call it. Just everything was like this categorical thing, and it's like you lost out so much. You lost the big picture in the process. This whole, he's, hopefully that's gone. See, I want you to think about our relationship. I want you to think about me as a person. Do, you want, do, do any of you want to be like hyper-categorized 
well, so-and-so has 10 aspects to them, and here they are. And oh, by the way, they're distinctly different than this other person who's distinctly different than this other. Does anybody really want to be described that way, or do you just want to be known to someone? Here I am. Don't slice and dice me up. This is who I am. Love me the way I am. That's all God's saying. We're in a relationship with him. There's lots of parts to me, he says, parts that you'll never fully understand because you're too small. But I want you to think about me this way. And I want you to think about the salvation plan, not some archaic artifact. I want you to think of my salvation plan the way I think about it. One unified plan. I'm not bound by time. I want you to think about it the way I think about it. And there's a whole ecosystem of thinking around thinking that way rather than some stringent categorical way of thinking about salvation, really? No wonder why it's stale in some people's souls. No wonder why other people even think they can be saved and then run away. Why? False doctrines. One of the stratagems, remember I used the word from McDonald, one of the stratums is, is, is false doctrines. Faulty doctrine. Tell people they can hedge a bet outside of the ecosystem of God. That's what happens when you dissect God and cut him up into pieces. You lose the ecosystem. You, you lose the interdependencies of even the doctrines. So we have been learning about God's ecosystem for some time now. If you've been paying attention to the lessons, this is a fundamental aspect of them. I call it the big picture perspective, which is fine, but what is it really? Well, when you think about the big picture perspective, you likely think about, I don't know, forest of the trees, but you know what a forest is full of? Trees, acorns, pine needles, birds, rodents, whatever. Or if you're a nerd, the pixels on a TV screen, right, get really close and it's like all these like little red, blue and yellow things that are changing colors, it doesn't make it, but if you back up you see the big picture. Or if you're a baker, the ingredients in a recipe. I don't know, I'm just throwing things out there. The point is that God's ecosystem must be thought of in just this way as a collective. You understand there are many parts. Parts you don't even, I can't even identify. But you know there's a lot of parts. I mean, a cake tastes good at the end of the day because something happens chemically that you don't even know happens. You put sugar in a bowl and oil in an egg some milk and some flour, and all of a sudden you get cake. It's like, whoa, how does that work? I don't know. I don't care sometimes, right? How does God love me? I don't know. I don't really care, but he does. How did he pull that off? I don't know. I can't say I don't care. I don't really care, really. I just know that he loves me, and he did this thing for me by grace. So we have to think about God's ecosystem this way. A collective, not as a bunch of discrete, unrelated particulars, but rather as something divinely unified that we have entree into when we are saved. We enter into the flock. We enter into the fold. That's when life begins. We don't turn around and go, wow, it was really cool that he saved me, but now I'm like, it's three years later, 
I got nothing to be grateful for. First Thessalonians 5, 16 18, I get it, but, mm, uh, you know, because you've got false doctrine. You think that, that salvation is a one-time event. No, he saves you daily, my friend. That's part of being in the ecosystem, in the sphere of his love. That is God. When you start thinking that way, you wake up every day. Not perfectly, I mean, who does? But you wake up with a sense of gratitude that's real. Not fake, not manufactured, not let's pretend because it's Sunday morning. Real. I was having this discussion with somebody. You know, how many times you say to yourself, you know, I'm going through something difficult right now, but I have peace. Who ever, does the Bible ever say that you're going to have a smile on your face when you experience his peace? Nope. Nope. It says you'll have peace. My peace I give to you. This is the man who hung on a cross, who for the joy set before him, endured shame that you and I can't, I'm going to cry, Woo. Enjoyed shame you can't even fathom. And he never lost his peace. How does that even work? He suffered un, uh, unspeakable ways. And he was perfect. How does that even work? Because you don't have to have a smile on your face. I mean, I, I, does anybody actually know of any scripture in the Bible that says Jesus smiled? Scott, do you know of any? No, I don't know of any. I'm not saying he didn't. I'm just saying, why is that? What's going on? So the Prince of Peace in the Bible is never actually shown to smile, to be doing cartwheels and expecting all the things that we Americans expect out of God. That's the only reason I go to church, because I want to smile more. I want, I want more stuff. I want God to prove his love to me by giving me stuff. Oh, I want, you know, I want better reputation. I want, I want romantic. Of course, romantic love. Gotta have romantic love. I don't give a crap. If it's my 16th marriage, I'm going to make a mockery out of it. I want love, and I want it now, and God's going to give it to me. Damn it. Because I want peace. Yeah, it sounds like you're at peace. Sounds like you're a miserable wretch looking for love in all the wrong places. Do you understand what I'm saying? I hope so. Because it's hard to teach. So we have to think of God's ecosystem as a collective. Something we have entree into at salvation. It's where life begins. You were spiritually dead. You were made alive in Christ. That's not some detail in the past. That's something you live out. So when we think of God, we think of Him as a divinely unified person. God is infinitely large in every way. And He's never intended to give us Himself in pieces. I think he just affords us the opportunity to learn about him. You know, like, oh, look, you know, it's like when you look at somebody. Oh, you have a cute nose. Or, I don't know, whatever you people look at. You know what I'm saying? Probably what you think when you see me. I'm just saying. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh, you have a cute nose. But that, that's not me. My nose isn't my person. You know what I'm saying? It's not, he, he affords us the opportunity to look at bits and pieces of him, which is great. But we can never lose the big picture. We can never lose the big picture even though we like to do that with them. 
So one last reflection, I swear I'm going to close. It's really not fair to think of God in discrete parts, nor is it healthy. It's not fair, and it's not healthy for us. I think when we do that, it's much easier to lose sight of other deeply meaningful aspects of Him, like love and integrity even, stuff like that. For example, when we study a doctrine, let's say we study the doctrine of God's justice. We're just going to look at you know, God's nose. We're just going to look at God's justice just for a moment. We're just going to focus on justice. We can get so wrapped up in the details that he becomes lopsided to us. All of a sudden, we're, you know, in, in our virtual pulpits out there, we become, you know, extreme judgment preachers, like just no love. It's just become, become lopsided. The wrath of God, you know, and those things are real. But, you know, and that's an absolute tragedy, truly. Some people do it with love, by the way. He's so loving, there's no justice. Wait a minute, whoa. Jesus, no, stop, that's true. But don't get lopsided because you're doing a disservice to people around you. God's love never exists, never has existed in the absence of his justice, ever. Ever. Even from before we were born. And that's a tragedy when we do that to him. And there are all kinds of games we can play once we carve him into pieces you know, you know, you carve them into pieces, right? All of a sudden, you become the puppeteer. All of a sudden, you go like, I don't really like that piece. Whoop! I'm only going to study the doctrine of love. I don't like these ones over here. I don't like when, I don't like when he says the things he says about American dating. I don't like that. So, whoop, it's gone. Never have to talk about it ever again. I don't like when he says, I have to take care of this earthly body, this temple. It's gone. Why did it get, it got really quiet right there. I don't know what happened, but everybody's laughing at everybody else about the romance thing, but then the body comes out. Everybody's like, whoa, whoa, whoa back off, mister. Right? I didn't say that's holy scripture. It's your temple. You beat on it. There's a problem. <laughs> Can't just throw it out, okay? Can't just throw it out. But that's what we do, right? We hack up God. God's saying, no, 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 do not think of me that way. Don't you do that to me. But we like to do that because it gives us control. And as soon as we have discrete parts of something, we get to go, don't like that one, don't like this one. But what God's saying, the Spirit's saying, no, I come as a whole package. This is me. This is who I am. You know, I don't show up without a nose and my left arm you don't like whatever it is. Here I am. Just like you don't show up. Right? You show up as a whole person last time I checked. All warts and everything. Scars, warts. I mean, good things too, so don't get all, you know, huffy. You show up the way you are. Why would we expect anything, or why would we want anything but that from, from God? So we can play that game and purposely leave some pieces out. In any case, here's what the Spirit's impressing on us. Oops, up here on the board. I think I'll leave you here. <laughs> yeah. Humility is the key to the spiritual life. Obedience is the evidence of it. Ensuring righteousness. Devotion is the focus activity. 
peace and joy are the results. I don't know about you, but I don't want to have a lopsided view of God. I don't. Even if my own flesh tempts me to. I want to know Him intimately, to love Him with every fiber of who I am. And this is what I'll close with. The Spirit saying, you ready? Great. Wonderful attitude. Then obey. Do we really have to end on that note? Yep. Obey. Let me bring into remembrance some of the word which I inspired so many years ago. Obey, he's saying. All the scripture we've been getting, obey, peristemi, pick up your marching orders, present yourselves as instruments of righteousness. How's that work? Obey. To be an instrument of righteousness, it's implied. You obey. Obey what? Parastemi. Your marching orders. You present yourselves as an active duty soldier. What do I put on? Here's the breastplate of righteousness. Here's this helmet of salvation. Dodd this, all this stuff. Here's the sword. Boom, here we go. Obey. And it starts with this right here. Keep taking in the Word of God. Keep doing what you're doing this morning. I know these lessons aren't easy. I know they're tough, but what's line number one? First word, humility. Stay humble. Obey. You want devotion? Do these things. When you're so devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, what's left? Peace and joy. Everything else is white noise. Even the person you live with, even those kids that drive you crazy. Lord Jesus Christ says, I'm with you, man. I got you. Devote your whole life to me. I'll give you my peace and my joy. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this wonderful privilege, this honor of doing this thing, to take in the word, the truth, as your son prayed for so many years ago, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Father, what a blessing it is to have that inserted into our souls. We just ask for your blessings as we take these things out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.